This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The Access Radio movement is 40 years old this year, and today there are a dozen stations which broadcast locally and online. Some of them fill gaps left by formerly local stations that are now hooked into national radio networks, and some of them produce programs that are up for national awards. But the internet also makes it pretty easy for communities to connect online these days. So does community radio broadcasting here have a future in the digital age? The aim of the game is not to be popular or to have more audience numbers. It's just to be known enough so that we reach these communities so they feel comfortable coming forward. Also, we look at the talk radio host who took a swing at political reporters this week. Actually, the glare of the public eye appears to be this programme and this programme alone because everyone else doesn't want to touch it but ended up wide of the mark and not for the first time. But first, that stabbing attack in central Dunedin came as a shock, but it also revealed that the ranks of reporters in the south are thinning out. And now this is just, you know, just incredibly distressing um, for our customers to be injured in, in the process as well, that we can't, you know, that we can't seem to do enough to keep our people safe just, you know, takes my breath away. It's, yeah, I've got no words really. I'm so sorry, I don't really know what to say apart from, um, yeah, it's a shocker. That was Countdown's Corporate General Manager Kerry Hannafin on RNZ's Checkpoint on Monday, about two and a half hours after the shocking stabbings in central Dunedin. And she said she was still getting details about how staff and customers were seriously hurt. And at that point, she was fielding many media inquiries while herself scrambling to get from Napier to Dunedin to help out on the ground. And with reporting strength in the South Island second city not quite what it used to be, some of our national media organisations were doing the same, as we'll hear. RNZ National listeners first heard the news from afternoon host Jesse Mulligan like this. We're just getting some breaking news that five people have been stabbed at Countdown on Cumberland Street in Dunedin. We're getting more uh, through um, as I speak to you, but uh, some pretty shocking breaking news through that five people have been stabbed at Countdown on Cumberland Street in Dunedin. The RNZ team are heading in that direction and also getting some more information up now. now we and among the RNZ team was RNZ's Dunedin reporter Timothy Brown. And at 6pm, Timothy Brown was live on Checkpoint with eyewitness accounts. Everyone was extremely shocked. There was a, a look of trauma on people's faces as they came out of the supermarket and Countdown staff were asked not to speak to the media. However, I was able to, to get the thoughts and the views of a handful of them as they left. Uh, one described the supermarket workers as, as taking the man down and, and disarming him for, during the attack. That is where some of these injuries occurred. That's compelling stuff, and Timothy Brown couldn't have got those accounts if he wasn't there reporting on the ground in Dunedin that day. But at 6pm on TVNZ1, it was a different story. These are live pictures from the scene in Cumberland Street, still in lockdown. Police due to undertake an extensive scene examination over the next couple of days, including security camera video. Police have a suspect in custody and are hailing the actions of members of the public who took down the offender as nothing short of heroic. While TVNZ News did have a camera there for those live pics at 6pm, its reporter Lisa Davies was in Christchurch. Blood covered his face as he was cuffed and restrained by police. The suspect appearing to resist his arrest following the knife attack in this Dunedin supermarket. 
And the pictures she described in her report there came from Dunedin's daily paper, the Otago Daily Times, which had the first professional video journalist on the scene soon after the attack. And at 6pm, the ODT's local TV operation, Channel 39, had its own full report with those images in its own 6pm news show. Tonight on the South Today, four people have been taken to Dunedin Hospital with stab wounds following an incident at Dunedin Central Countdown. Meanwhile, back on TVNZ1 at the same time, the One News Live updates came not from the scene or from the city, but from another reporter in Christchurch. Dunedin, of course, renowned as a university town. Maddie, any word yet on whether any students were involved? That's right. Again, police say that they are still in the very early stages of their investigation and it was an incredible... Now, some One News viewers were unhappy about Dunedin's big story being covered out of Christchurch, but it turned out the timing was just a bit unfortunate for TVNZ last Monday. Its reporter in Dunedin for the past six years, John McKenzie, had just left his post late last month. His replacement, Maddie Lloyd, who we heard there, was due to take up the job this coming week. TVNZ's news chief Paul Urisic told MediaWatch this week they tried hard to get their reporters into Dunedin by 6pm on Monday from both Christchurch and Queenstown where Jared McCulloch is their reporter. Maddie Lloyd's live update on One News actually came from Christchurch Airport and she was in Dunedin in time for TVNZ's late news show on Monday tonight along with her Christchurch colleague Lisa Davies. However, back in 2015, TVNZ did propose scrapping the role of its only Dunedin reporter, part-timer Megan Martin, and its sole full-time camera operator and editor in the city. Back then, they put forward a business case arguing that in fact they covered two cities and more than 65,000 square kilometres, including the most intense tourist area in the country. The region's mayors and MPs swung in behind with a campaign and a petition of their own, and TVNZ eventually scrapped that cut, a rare case of a media restructuring proposal which turned out not to be a fait accompli. Another media company to cut back in Dunedin in recent years is NZME, the owner of the New Zealand Herald and half the country's radio stations. In September 2018, it lost its Dunedin reporter, who also covered Otago and Southland. And NZME's lower South Island news coverage now usually comes out of Christchurch too. But the NZME daily rural radio show The Country does come from Dunedin and its executive producer Rowena Duncan, an experienced live broadcaster, had a bird's eye view on Monday reporting for Newstalk ZB. Looking out the window, what can you see? So I look directly across uh, to the Countdown car park. It is still blocked. Access is still blocked by police cars at the moment. There were two ambulances. We saw multiple people loaded into these ambulances earlier. They have both returned. But NZME doesn't have a dedicated news reporter in Dunedin anymore, partly because it shares content with the Otago Daily Times, which has by far the biggest newsroom in the city, and it's just blocks away from the scene of Monday's drama. And that was the source of many live updates online and throughout the day on Monday. And on Newstalk ZB, host Andrew Dickens relayed those to listeners nationwide like this. In terms of the injuries, an Otago Daily Times reporter at the scene said one person was put into the ambulance with what appeared to be a neck wound. A second person stretched it onto the ambulance. At least one of the patients is a member of staff. A third person wearing a countdown uniform has come out with a bandaged shoulder. A fourth injured person who also appeared to be a staff member, was taken out of the supermarket with, again, what looked like head and shoulder injuries. As with the TV broadcasters and those pictures from the scene on Monday, other media were also grateful for the ODT's local reporting on the day. 
Stuff doesn't have a newspaper in Dunedin, but it does have a full-time reporter, Hamish McNeely, who shared this response with his Twitter followers when one broadcaster turned to him to try and fill the gap live in its on-air coverage. To the radio station that has no Dunedin-based reporters, no, I will not go on your live show. And there were two further words at the end of that tweet to reinforce that message, though we won't broadcast them here. And it is understandable that the ongoing shortage of reporters in the city would be a sore point, especially after the shocking news on Monday, for which some outlets didn't have reporters' boots on the ground. As we heard earlier, TVNZ would have had its reporters there, but for a bit of bad luck. And last Monday, TVNZ's rivals at News Hub also reported the story on Monday, in part, from Christchurch. But its Dunedin reporter, Dave Gooselink, was live and on the scene on News Hub at 6 that day. That customers who tried to help the team members were also injured. They point out they've been concerned about the escalating violence towards Countdown team and this is something we will continue to talk and raise as an issue over the next year. Dave Gooselink there live from Dunedin. But it turns out that News Hub's long-serving reporter Dave Gooselink won't be covering Dunedin for the network, not to mention the rest of Otago and Southland, a year from now. Last week, News Hub staff were told a proposed restructure of South Island news gathering might mean the complete axing of its Dunedin newsroom. In September last year, global broadcaster Discovery had bought MediaWorks television arm, including News Hub, and in February, those new owners launched a new midday bulletin. And they said at the time they were committed to local news at a time when news is more important than ever. But now it seems Discovery's priority is combining operations into one trans-Tasman unit and cutting costs by covering the news from the south from a reduced bureau in Christchurch seems to be part of that new plan. Now, as in 2015, when TVNZ threatened to pull out of Dunedin, mayors and local MPs, including tidy MP Ingrid Leary, who's formerly a TV3 journalist, urged Discovery to reconsider. But it didn't have the same effect this time round. Last Thursday, News Hub's owner Discovery confirmed the closure in Dunedin. Now, Southland District Mayor Gary Tong told the Otago Daily Times this week that he'd written to the News Hub Director of News, Sarah Bristow, on behalf of other Southern mayors, but he had no response. And that was the same response Media Watch got when we asked for an interview after the announcement of the closure. Instead, we were issued with a two-line statement from Discovery's corporate communications, which it wanted attributed to simply an unnamed spokesperson. The statement said... We remain committed to regional news with our excellent team of reporters and camera crews who travel the country regularly and through our network of freelancers. Our focus remains the same, said Discovery, delivering the best in-class news to Kiwis. Now, there's nothing new about a company which has made an unpopular announcement, being reluctant to talk about it with the rest of the media and issuing a short statement instead with a reassuring tone to it. But it's disappointing when it comes from a media outlet producing news whose reporters encounter that sort of thing all the time. And they'll know better than anyone that delivering best-in-class news to Kiwis is easier said than done without reporters to report things that happen where or near where those Kiwis actually live, as the coverage of this week's shocking supermarket violence in central Dunedin showed all too well.
It's the job of the fourth estate to hold agencies of state to account over the ways in which it uses its power over the people. But if the state thinks the media have crossed the line or broken the law, it can strike back with its own power too. Now that doesn't happen very often and it's even more rare for an individual journalist to be made liable. But this week one organisation said it feels like it's being punished for revealing the state's misuse of power. Hayden Donnell takes a look. In late April, the Waitangi Tribunal released a highly critical report on Oranga Tamariki. It said the agency had breached the Treaty of Waitangi by running a system which separates vastly disproportionate numbers of Māori children from their families. Oranga Tamariki had not allowed Māori rangatira of their kāinga, the report said. The Tribunal also made an unusual recommendation. It urged Crown Ministers to watch a video by the media organisation Newsroom, which shows a child uplift being carried out in Hastings. It said the short documentary, part of Newsroom's series on Oranga Tamariki titled Taken by the State, makes the case for substantial reform in ways more eloquent and direct than it can convey in words. In an article published this week, Newsroom co-founder Tim Murphy revealed the site is now in legal jeopardy over another video published as part of the same Taken by the State series. The video, also fronted by investigations editor Melanie Reid, shows a reverse uplift where children are separated from their foster family, in this case to be placed with distant whānau. Crown Law successfully sought an injunction that forced Newsroom to take the video down in November, arguing it breached the Family Court Act, which outlaws the identification of the children involved in the reverse uplift. Tim Murphy says Newsroom is now also under police investigation for its alleged breach of the Family Court Act. Newsroom doesn't accept that the children were identifiable in its video, it also had made changes to the video in response to requests from Crown Law after it was first published in November last year. News of the police action has been met with dismay by some journalists and commentators. On RNZ's Nine to Noon, former editor of the press Andrew Holden placed the action in the context of wider issues with media freedoms in New Zealand. I don't think there's a journalist in this country who would regard the defamation laws, for example, as being contributing to press freedom. Uh, we still see a lot of name suppression through courts issued very quickly. There are strong restrictions around the porting of uh, suicide, for example. And then there's a piece on Newsroom today talking about the fact that the police have opened an investigation. Yes, we do have, by and large, a very free press here, but there are still some pretty strong pressures yeah. on them. Stuff investigative journalist Kirsty Johnston is the author of a recent feature on a woman identified as Mrs P who was subjected to shocking treatment in the family court, including a wrongful conviction for perjury. She says the section of the Family Court Act being used against Newsroom has also had a chilling effect on her own reporting. Whenever I contact victims of domestic abuse who've been through the family court, they always want to tell their story. But they're really scared about the Section 11B, which is a part of the law that says vulnerable parties can't be identified. And normally that's because they've been given incorrect information, maybe that it's illegal to share their judgment or that they could be fined. So they're already scared kind of by lawyers or, you know, other people that they've talked to. But then if they go online and research it, they see what's happening to newsroom. And so they, their fears are kind of legitimate. It just makes them more afraid. And it's terrible because as we found out with Mrs P's case, um, these stories really need to be told. But the state is actively taking action to suppress them and to keep victims who to be fair, are already taking a risk in telling their story because, you know, they have the fear of their abuser as well. 
but they're being kept silent. In its report on Oranga Tamariki, the Waitangi Tribunal details a culture that lacks accountability and transparency. Media scrutiny has gone some way towards addressing that issue. The Tribunal's report stemmed in part from the public outcry of a newsroom's original video on the Hastings uplift. And even though it was forced off the website, newsroom's video on reverse uplifts saw the government tell Oranga Tamariki to put a stop to the practice. At the moment, it seems legal action by the Crown is diminishing the media's ability to keep applying that kind of scrutiny. That's concerning not just for journalists, but the families who want to tell their stories. Hayden Donnell reporting there on why Newsroom is now the focus of a police investigation over its Taken by the State investigative series about Oranga Tamariki. And when we know the outcome of that police investigation, we'll bring it to you here on Media Watch. I'm Asha Abdi. I'm a broadcasting student in Christchurch and a Muslim woman. Al Noor is my mosque. I grew up there. I knew some of the people killed there, the martyrs. An excerpt there from Widows of Shuhada, which told the stories of four Muslim women widowed by the Christchurch mosque attacks and how they dealt with their grief and the very different lives they found themselves facing afterwards. It's a podcast series available from RNZ and was broadcast on RNZ National earlier this year. But it was made by Plains FM, one of 12 community access radio stations around the country. Next month, Widows of Shuhara will be up against RNZ's own programmes in the Best Documentary category of the New Zealand Radio Awards. That's quite an achievement for a programme presented by a student broadcaster for a mostly volunteer-run community radio station. But it isn't the first time Plains FM has had national recognition. Widows of Shuhara's lead producer at Plains FM, Lana Hart, won a New Zealand Radio Award in 2015 for a series on Filipinos working and living in Canterbury. And her own radio and podcast series called After March 15 ran for four months following the mosque shootings. Dr Duncan Webb, MP for Christchurch Central, thanks for updating us on the government's response to the tragedy. Central government has moved quickly on gun law changes. What are some of the other areas that there has been government action on? The government's moved quickly in a whole lot of ways. Obviously, there's... Now, these are examples of what the access radio stations can do locally, where they exist. The network was founded 40 years ago as a local radio broadcasting movement to get otherwise unheard and unheard voices out on independently and voluntarily run stations with limited public funding. But today they don't just operate on air locally, they're also online and available anywhere, and so are the programmes as podcasts. And to reflect that, the network is now called the Community Access Media Alliance. Dunedin-based Otago Access Radio, for example, airs shows made by and for local school kids and a daily after-school show called Youth Zone, which gives young broadcasters a chance to learn new skills. In 2019, Otago Access Radio launched an impressive new app with Youth Zone content and one of the most ambitious stations in the network is Nelson-based Fresh FM, which, uniquely, broadcasts from four locations, Takaka, Motueka and Blenheim, as well as Nelson. And that came in pretty handy when fires ravaged the Nelson Hills in 2019 and even threatened the Fresh FM main studio in Founders Park. Uh, please do bear in mind that we are in areas like sort of Blenheim, Motueka and Golden Bay running on smaller resources because we have sent a lot of our uh, volunteer fire brigade and uh, equipment to Nelson. So please do be mindful. 
In 2018, the Access Network was reviewed by the Auckland University of Technology's radio expert, Dr Matt Mulgard, and he concluded that Access Radio has found itself in many places the last truly local media left. But all this is done for sums that are insignificant set against the budgets for the likes of RNZ or national TV programmes. Jo Holstead is from the Auckland region's access station Planet FM and she's the current chair of the Community Access Media Alliance, or CARMA for short. We are not unique as a not-for-profit in that a lot of your energy when you're not fully funded is spent looking for funding and there is some money but you need to look for the rest of the money. Uh, what we have seen in the last year is COVID has meant that where for a long time I think that we were seen as a kind of a nice-to-have, you know, oh, how nice to have a diverse radio station or set of um, platforms that represent local voices and all their diversity. That seems nice. Suddenly people um, at an organiz- other organisational levels realise that if you can have some security of funding going forward, it does make you put you in a better, better position to focus on your core business. Well, you mentioned COVID there, Joe, and I mean, we have seen a lot of government intervention putting money into the media sector to, you know, help it survive in some instances, but also into journalism. The government, and also in in the last budget, was quite specific that media interventions should address underserved audiences. Have the stations benefited directly or the alliance as a whole benefited directly from the extra money that's been pumped in by the government to the media sector post-COVID? Prior to to last year's budget, where we were invited to ask for more funding at an individual station level, um, which our various stations did, we hadn't had any funding increase for the best part of 10 years. So that funding boost made a really big difference for us. Do you feel that New Zealand On Air does want to uh, and is committed to supporting you and your current framework into the future? I think they do. I mean, the reason that community access exists Um, And the reason that we get funding from New Zealand On Air is because the Section 36C of the Broadcasting Act explicitly outlines the need for platforms that serve um, a range of underserved communities. Um, So as long as the mainstream media is not serving those communities, there will still be uh, a reason for us to be able to ask um, for that support. It's relatively cheap to run a radio station, what we provide um, within Access Media, we do for the equivalent cost of, you know, a day's production somewhere else. We are running professional organisations that rely on the great work of a whole lot of volunteer program makers. We provide the training, we provide the platform, um, and we provide the facilities. Um, and the cost that we run our stations at per year, if you look at any other radio station, um, you, you couldn't argue that we're good bang for buck. This week, the Community Access Media Alliance launched a new campaign urging people to find your voice by finding your local station. But what of the years ahead for the Alliance? The entire public media sector's future is now up in the air as the government pursues a new public media entity, which means that the Broadcasting Act is likely to be rewritten. And now that people in communities around the country can easily connect via social media, as well as on the radio, do the 12 local radio stations around the country have a long-term future? These are questions I put this week to the National Coordinator for the Alliance, Sasha Borisenko. Oh, absolutely. It's a hot spot for community outreach programs. If you go to an access media station, you get the training, you get the support, and you also get the community. So it's a network 
Um, similarly, I think in the age of digital media and cost cutting, we've seen a decline in uh, community-based uh, print publications. I mean, I was at Fairfax when all those cuts kind of happened, and I think people are starting to realise that community-based content is kind of needed more now than ever, really. Having the ability, particularly for people um, when it comes down to languages, there really is no other option, is there, for people to broadcast in languages, you know, other than English, with the exception of, you know, perhaps the Iwi Radio Network for Tadeo, um, and, you know, certain things like Radio Tarana in Auckland, maybe, but apart from that, for smaller ethnic and linguistic groups, it's just about the only game in town. Absolutely, and all the stations were running throughout COVID, for example, and it was an opportunity for um, the government to kind of team up with uh, the stations to get their messaging across because, you know, it's a conundrum. When when we have situations such as this, how do you know, public service or public entities actually reach these audiences? In theory, you could go down the mainstream media route, but of course there's no guarantee because they're generally untapped markets. And of course, if you're talking to, say, a refugee or a migrant communities, um, they're fairly isolated, right? So A, Access Media offers this avenue for them to have a voice. It's content for, by, and about them. But also it's serving communities that aren't otherwise served, if that makes sense. Sure, and people listening to this might be thinking, well, that's a nice to have. Um, However... This is actually something that fulfills the Broadcasting Act, right? What's that fulfilling in terms of the legislation? Well, so we're mandated by Section 36C of the Broadcasting Act, which essentially says having to provide broadcasting a certain number of hours for minority groups, so women, children, people with disabilities. I mean, that's an interesting jurisprudential issue in and of itself, saying that women you know, generally are a minority. But it also encompasses different ideas, so um, religious groups, different ways ways of thinking, and say in the next five years, I think that's probably the direction that Access Media will be going down in terms of lobbying for that to be changed, because like you say, it's something that's really fundamentally important um, for a thriving media in terms of New Zealand, so it does need to be protected, and rather than thinking that it's, say, a nice to have, it needs to be, you know, a fundamental civil liberty. But of course, we're seeing innovative um, avenues where, say, um, the likes of Plains FM are partnering up with RNZ to produce amazing podcasts, but they're not getting funding for that per se, but it's really great for their profile. And effectively, it reaches more audiences, so you've got a more likelihood of programmers to come into that station. Plains FM are creating this kind of um, online correspondence educational package. So basically you've got all the stations going to um, individual colleges or high schools or whatnot to essentially train younger people to feel comfortable in, in radio or basically to flourish. But by doing this package... Well, as you mentioned earlier, community newspapers, which might might be another avenue other than broadcasting for local community groups, those are not what they were. In fact, a lot of them have ceased to exist. In some areas, is Access Radio now finding itself the last truly local media you know, left in their region? As we know, over the last decade or so, a lot of previously local stations have become networked into national brands. So in a lot of places, it is the only local game in town? Absolutely. And for some reason, there's this narrative across the media landscape where it's, you know, go national, cut, um, cut let's get rid of the, the local things that are deemed inefficient. But now we're seeing value in um, community-driven, hyper-local content. So the, the aim of the game is not to be 
popular or to have more audience numbers. It's just to be known enough so that we reach these communities so they feel comfortable coming forward. Another thing that differs to, say, mainstream media is provided that uh, the content meets all the standards within the Broadcasting Act, you've got, you don't have the editorial constraints. So you have, you've got these programmers coming in who can directly say what they need to say and reach their community. And I think that's a real bargaining chip um, for these people and why they feel comfortable coming forward. Well, the uh, network was reviewed in 2018 um, by Matt Mulgard from the AUT, Dr Matt Mulgard, who's their specialist in radio at the Auckland University of Technology. One of the things he concluded was that some of the managers of the network spoke of a bit of anxiety um, about the tier system. I mean, for many people it seems logical, doesn't it, if Planet FM and Auckland broadcasting to a much wider region. But is that tier system equitable in your mind? Is it something that maybe limits their ambitions of what they can do? But of course, you know, we've got different regions and different populations that we're dealing with. But how do you show your value as a community group that, say, might be reaching two people, but they happen to be 100% of whatever community in New Zealand's population? How do you translate that and communicate that to potential funders or potential advertisers just to say, you know, this is really important and we're reaching these communities? Um, The other side of that, you know, we're now in a society where we're recognising things like uh, well-being and mental health. Yeah, so it's not just about audience numbers, clicks and money. But how do you know who's listening? Because as, as we know, for niche audiences, for small things, very difficult for um, the likes of Nielsen's and major audience uh, research survey firms to actually work out who's getting things that aren't intended for mass, mass audiences. For, in terms of the radio, um, you, we're not measuring that because, of course, these huge surveys cost a lot of money. And You know, in terms of um, we can also measure audience numbers from our podcasting platform, accessmedia.nz, and that's been quite successful. And, you know, NZ On Air have been very kind in terms of putting a lot of money into that. So, And they're seeing the benefits. You know, for example, there might be content produced um, on, um, on air and that will be repackaged um, and so forth and that put onto the podcasting platform. From listening to a bunch of kids, you know, playing karaoke, it's there not to benefit an audience per se, but it's to service that community. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's one area I would pick out, actually, is uh, young adults, Youths. let's call it that, because... There's funding for, you know, things for little kids, you know, children's programming, we could say that, and then, you know, stuff to attract young, the younger demographic that, say, television with its big budgets is after um, 25 to 54 and so on. Between, say, high school age or maybe up to 20, 25, n- not a whole lot of publicly funded content. Things like Otago Access Radio, OAR, you know, they launched their own app with their youth content a couple of years ago. That is a voice you don't hear almost anywhere else on the year. Access Radio Taranaki, they're doing segments where they're documenting the race unity speeches, so they're going to all the local uh, competitions or whatnot. And hilariously, I actually did that when I was in high school. You know, I got through to the finals and I, I actually, finally my speech was aired on Radio New Zealand and that was a huge deal in my little life back in the day. And it gave me a sense of worth and a sense of purpose and sense of meaning. And so you've got there had that been around when I was a child, I probably would have found this love of uh, journalism and radio and broadcasting much, much earlier. And it's all almost prepackaged. You've got these kids walking up, doing a five-minute speech. It's easy. 
Just to close, uh, the 40 years of the network has been marked with Sharing the Mic, the book by uh, Dr Brian Pauling. But in 10 years' time, do you think there still will be around about the same dozen or so networks still broadcasting on um, the airwaves, AM and FM, um, in their local territories, as well as you know the digital platform? Well, I think it's a very resilient sector. Uh, obviously, we don't have a presence in the Bay of Plenty, nor do we have one in Northland. I think that's something really to that needs to be explored, either by NZ On Air or um, Chris Farfoy. We've got a... Um, increasing population of baby boomers who love radio, so nonetheless they'll be wanting to sit around their radio and listen to something that uh, reflects their ideas and I don't know. You know, you think that might be a healthy crop of volunteers or people even with the engineering skills as well to run stations and that, that could happen? Oh, it? absolutely. I mean, it's happening now in terms of kapiti. Um I was just there yesterday and, what, uh, 20% of that region are over the age of 65 and, and that station really reflects that population. So, absolutely, yeah. So is, is it actually a goal of the CAMA to expand? I think it's something that NZ On Air ought to explore. Because if we're really servicing our communities, there's a void there. That was the National Coordinator for the Community Access Media Alliance, Sasha Borisenko. And you can hear more from her and more about the Alliance, which recently hit the milestone of 40 years since the formation of Access Radio Community Broadcasting in the online version of the story on the RNZ website and the app. Just look for the title, Access All Areas. Clinton Duffy's with us. Clinton, morning to you. This exciting? Oh, not really. Oh. It would be if you came across one, but um, they turn up fairly regularly. That was Mike Hosking on his News Talk ZB Breakfast Show on Monday talking to marine animal expert Clinton Duffy, the day that reports of a second venomous sea snake had washed up on a northern beach and then washed up in the media here. And that prompted Mike Hosking to follow up with this. Well, why are they in the news all of a sudden? We found two and we think it's a big deal. Why? Yeah, I don't really know. Um, they turn up every year. So the yellow-bellied sea snake sightings were a bit of a beat-up, and Mike Hosking reassured listeners... Don't worry about it. Got carried away with ourselves. No need to panic at all. And Mike Hosking's media myth-busting made the ZB News at the top of the next hour. Dock expert Clinton Duffy told Mike Hosking they get swept down in ocean currents every year. So an interview with an expert enlightened the listeners and got a fact or two into the news as well. All good. But the same day, Mike Hosking had harsher words for the rest of the media about something else. Just reading through the news, not one article in any of the main papers about this dock leak that Judith Collins is talking about. That's why people can't do anything, because uh, left-wing media don't report it. I'm deeply suspicious about what's going on in the media at the moment. You cannot. Even if you say, look, I've, I've read Heipuapua, and I couldn't agree with it more, and I think it's a stellar piece of documentary. Now there, Mike Hosking was referring to revelations on Sunday from National Party leader Judith Collins that a review of the Department of Conservation is recommending that some dock functions and powers be delegated or devolved to Tangata Whenua. And after that, Mike Hosking told his listeners on Monday that media bias meant it was only he that was drawing attention to this. Fortunately, the glare of the public eye appears to be this programme and this programme alone, because everyone else doesn't want to touch it. And that in itself, I would have thought, is suspicious. And it would be, but like the sea snakes, it was reported in the 6pm TVNZ News the night before as well. National Today going on the attack, saying it has a document showing secret plans for the Department of Conservation. And while Mike said he scoured Monday's papers and found nothing about the story, 
half of page four in the Herald that day, which is produced in the same building as the one Mike Hosking broadcast from, was filled with a story about that Department of Conservation review. And the same story also ran in the North Island newspapers published by NZME, which owns the Herald and Mike Hosking's News Talk ZB. And the news story itself was by New Zealand Herald political reporter Jason Walls, who will soon move from the Herald to News Talk ZB, where presumably he'll be hoping Mike Hosking does notice his reporting. And it wasn't in fact the only time he criticised other media on his show last Monday. Another story missed by most of us over the weekend, and, and once again I cannot explain why, but it was a very good piece by Simon Mercer on TV1, I think, Saturday night. Landmark ruling. Now there, Mike Hosking credited TVNZ for reporting last weekend that a high court had granted Bay of Plenty iwi te Whakatoia customary rights to local marine areas after a 30-year legal campaign. Here, the courts made a big call. It says in terms of tikanga, or Māori custom, the confiscation of lands would not have severed the connection with the foreshore. But on his show on Monday, Mike Hosking started riffing at length on the possible consequences of this and the lack of media attention and hepuapua. The interpretation put forward in hepuapua uh, is Article 3 guarantees Māori equity, which does not mean all individuals should be treated the same. So you've got massive things going on in this country at the moment, and for, for the life of me, it isn't getting the noise and the traction that it deserves. Now, Mike Hosking was right about that ruling late last week, not getting much media coverage, but the way Mike Hosking segued in and out of comment about Te Whakatoia and the High Court ruling and his takes on the Hepuapua report would have been deeply confusing for the audience, even misleading at times. And when Mike Hosking's sidekick, Glenn Hart, cut Mike Hosking's comments into his Best of the Day podcast last Monday, he added a little comment of his own. Big takeover. Uh, If you thought Judith Collins' attitudes were slightly racist, seems like Mike might be going along with some of them. I'm uncomfortable. Let's move on quickly to uh, the fair pay deal. Now, just last month at News Talk ZB, the veteran political editor Barry Soper gave Mike Hosking an honest serve after Mike Hosking claimed the press gallery had failed to quiz the Prime Minister about surplus MIQ places. On air and in the Herald, Barry Soper said a ZB colleague was dead wrong. Hosking wasn't at the post-Cabinet news conference, so he could be forgiven for missing the questions asked about the MIQ facilities and the stories that were filed as a result of them. Last week, Mike Hosking was also upset by stuff misreporting, as he saw it, the recent ratings boost for his own show. In a column for ZB's sister paper, The Herald, he asked readers this. Unless the person on the receiving end of the inaccuracies, in this case me and my beloved radio station, say something, how many were left with the impression that what stuff put out there was true? And that's a fair question, though reporters that he's criticised lately for falling down on the job when they didn't, including his own colleagues, will be probably asking that too. Well, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this week. We'll be back again with more on the media in Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.